Greetings and welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Dr. Alan Chiwura, a consultant urologist. If you enjoy this conversation, remember to subscribe, to like, and share. Let's get down to some work. Dr. Alan Chura, welcome to In Conversation with Trevor. Thank you, Trevor. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I am so excited to be chatting to you because you are an interesting person. You know, as I was looking at your CV and then listening to the podcast that you sent me, thank you so much for that. I'm like, this is such a rounded human being. Um, you are a medical doctor. You play golf. You are interested in the Culture Fund. You've been part of the Sports Commission. You've introduced me to um, a very interesting trust, the James Kapnick Trust. We're going to talk about that. You sit on a board of uh, Pulse uh, Pharmaceuticals. You are a father, married to beautiful uh, Nozi Pumaraire. Um, and I, I say to myself, perhaps before going there, you've just come back from witnessing your daughter, daughter's uh, graduation. Tell me about that experience. Um, a very emotional one. Um, my eldest daughter, Tanashe, um, attended uh, Bennington, Bennington College, which is up in Vermont. Uh, my other children joke that it's in Canada because it's so <laughs> cold. <clears throat> um, where um, she uh, did a degree in digital media and French. And... Um, uh, to be able to go to your first child's graduation, I think, is very, very special. I feel immensely blessed and immensely grateful. Um, it's been a, a journey of note. Um, we weren't sure how this was going to play out, because if you remember, we were in the U.S. for 30 mm. years. We're going to go there. And when we packed up the kids, you know, uh, she was only 12, and moving them from one place to another, we weren't sure how it was going to work out. But it was a, it was just a... As parents, we were immensely proud. Yeah, you've got four. Hey? Yes, we have four. Um, just break them down. So that's Tinashe. Yeah. Um, Tulilani is the next one, and she is uh, at my alma mater, uh, Washington in Washington D.C., American University. Um, she's studying English literature, philosophy, and theater. Wow. And then um, the next one is my uh, oldest son, Janta. Um, he ended up going to finish high school in Spain. So he just graduated from um, Soto Grande International School in Spain and is going to be attending Rollins uh, College in Winter Park, Florida to start his degree in entrepreneurship. Um, and then our youngest one is at St. George's, again, my alma mater, um, who is in Form 3. Hmm. Yeah, and that's Taonga. Wow. You must be a proud father. Very. Very, very proud. What, one of the reasons why I thought we should have this conversation is your father, mm -hmm. uh, the late Inos uh, uh, Chiwura, who was a role model to me, who, when I was a journalist, uh, you know, would call me up. And uh, when I got things wrong, he would say, Ningina, 
Chimbuyaknoku, and then I would drive <laughs> from Charter Road uh, to Delta Corporation, and then he would sit me down and say, you got it here, you got it wrong here. And then afterwards, we get up, either we have a meal in the boardroom, or we have a cup, cup of coffee. Uh, and he'd walk me through, he was very patient with me, he taught me a lot. Your father represents a generation um, which unfortunately we're losing, but a generation which for a lot of us were role models. And I'm just going to run a couple of names. Uh, Charles Sutete, uh, Bernard Chizero, Ariston Chambati, Professor Kahari, uh, Dr. Sadza, my former boss, Elias Rusike, Dr. Robin Paose, Sam Gozo. You had an amazing father, amazing pedigree. Tell me about the man and your relationship with the man. You know, <clears throat> he's a, he, he was, a, a, as you correctly say, he was an amazing, amazing human being. Sorry, I'm going to get a little emotional here. <clears throat> um, uh, Sunday was the first Father's Day without him. So it was, um, it was a little difficult. Um, but this is a man who most people don't know, who grew up in a village. He started in a village, went to... Uh, sort of got through the standard six that, you know, you were allowed to get through at that time. And, um, you know, the only thing that was available to him at the time was carpentry. Um, so he was a carpenter. And after doing carpentry, he, he because he always wanted to further himself, became a teacher. <clears throat> um, and through the teaching, study, 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 and eventually got acceptance to the University of Zimbabwe. And he was a much older student. Um, in fact, I remember when the late... Uh, John Robertson passed away last year. Um, he was my father's classmate, but yet my father was probably 10 years older than he was. And that's how it was. Um, so from there, he ended up going to, um, getting a scholarship to go to uh, university in, in Manchester, uh, where he did a, a master's degree. And that's where I started school. Um, at the time, I was an only child. And uh, we, there's two of you. There are two of I have a younger brother, Munyaradzi, yes. Where is Mnyaradze? He's here. He's local. Um, he works for a, uh, an edutech, uh, US-based edutech, edutech company. Um, and then uh, we came back. And then my father started at National Breweries and literally rose through the ranks um, and eventually becoming chairman of that company. But growing up in that man's house, um, <clears throat> he was extremely strict, as was my mother. Uh, my mother was the ultimate disciplinarian. Um, when, when things had to be handled, it was my mother that handled them. Um, and I was a handful. I, 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 and I apologize to my mother now. Am I? I'm sorry. I hope I made up for it. Um, I was a handful. Um, but, um, but they were patient. I mean, they, they really understood the long game. Um, and I think as parents, that's something we really have to understand mm -hmm. that not all of us mature at the same time. Some take a little longer than others. I think... Uh, you know, my wife would be a better person to state this, but I believe that the male brain finally achieves full maturity at about age 25. So be patient with, especially your sons, but be patient with your children. And my patients were very patient. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you say he, he played the long game, they played the long game. I mean, look at where he started. Um, then getting an economics uh, degree from the University of Zimbabwe, and then getting uh, a scholarship to go out, outside. They, tell me... What lessons have you held on, imparted to you by your dad? Um, <clears throat> probably the biggest one is to never let anybody else define who you are. Um, 
They tried to throw him in a box on multiple occasions. You can't do this. You're black. You can't do that. You haven't enough of this. You can't do that. And I've taken that same lesson throughout my life. I mean, when I think about my medical journey um, in the United States, is you know, getting into medical school as a foreigner at the time was very, very difficult. And they told me when I was in an undergrad saying, you're never going to get in. Don't even apply. I applied. I got in. When I finished medical, as I was finishing medical school, I wanted to be a urologist. They said, you know, foreigners don't get urology positions. It doesn't happen. I applied and I got in. So the moral of that story is never let anyone tell you what you cannot do. And I took that directly from my father. Mm. Yeah. And why medicine? Why urology? Talk to me about that. Yeah, so the urology pit is interesting. Medicine, um, a, another sort of late great um, my, I, when I was 16, I played, I, I, when I was younger, I played a lot of rugby. And I had a rugby injury, I had a knee injury when I was about 16 years old that landed me at St. Anne's Hospital. And my surgeon was the late Chris Mishonga, mm. whom I just adored. Wow. I just adored what the man. A character. Oh, he was a character. He had charisma, he had flair. And I just thought this man was just God walking on earth. You know, I really did as a 16 year old. And he did my surgery. And I did really great for my surgery. I did very, very well. And my mother was a, a nurse. And so I had this sort of interest that was there already. But then when I got injured, I really said, you know what? I really want to go into medicine. I want to be a sports medicine doctor. That's really what I want to do. And so uh, even I, I still have the, my application letter for medical school to saying, I really want to go to medical school. I want to be uh, an orthopedic surgeon because I want to be the team doctor for a Zimbabwe Olympic team. That was my dream. Well, that was shattered when I got into medical school. And I apologize to all my orthopedic surgeons, but I got to medical school and I had to do an orthopedic rotation and they took out a hammer and a chisel. And I said, this is not medicine. So I did not thoroughly enjoy my this orthopedic like <laughs> I did not enjoy my orthopedic rotation. And as it, as it happened, when you go into medical school, you're assigned a, an advisor. My advisor was, happened to be a urologist. His name was Lester Carafin. Uh, God rest his soul. Lester Carafin, it turned out, which I didn't know, had written the textbook of urology that was used the world over. And he was my advisor. And I didn't really know what urology was. But what I used to see was I used to see him leave the hospital grounds, generally at about 4.30, 5 o'clock, every other day in his tennis gear. And I remember thinking, you know, whatever this man does, I want to do I it. want to do that. Wow. And that's how I pursued urology. Wow. wow. You know, that story to me, um, to the audience out there, is how we role model people. Total unaware. That's, that's what we're doing. But somebody's watching, somebody's watching you and say, I want to be that person. For me, there was that person, um, uh, Chitambo. Um, can't remember his, second, his first name now. Um, please forgive me. I'll, I'll see him in Magwego, putting on his uh, Ziligazi High School uh, white shirt and tie. And I said, I want to be like him one day. So we role model without realizing it. Um, let me take back to the household, growing up in, in um, uh, Mr. Enos Chura's house, may his soul rest in peace. Who passed through that house, this generation that we talked about, um, that, that you yeah. looked up to? I mean, you've already, already mentioned Chris Mishon. Yeah, you, 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 you name them. So... Um, when we came back from the United Kingdom, we lived in uh, what was then called, I don't know what it's called now, but it was then called My 12 Pounds. 
um, in Who the high is that? In high, high fields. fields. Yeah, it's in high fields. Wow. And my on, 12 pounds. My 12 pounds. And on that street, um, our neighbor on, on the left was uh, Bishop Abel Mzorewa. Our neighbor on the right uh, was, uh, actually there was a house in between us, but was the late um, uh, Dr. Mnyaradzi. Mm. Yeah. In fact, Dr. Mnyaradzi's wife, who was the matron, who then ended up being the matron at St. Anne's Hospital, was the one who used to take me and her boys to school. She used to drive me to school. And so the conversations with Dr. Mnyaradzi were always present. Um, then the men, the, the men you mentioned, uh, Elias Rusike. Elias, Elias Rusike was a very good friend of my father's. And so he was forever present. Uh, Robin Powell said. So you okay. can understand, yes. I'm, I'm working for Elias Rusike. Yes. He's my boss, he's yes. my CEO. Yes. And I mess up uh, Inos Chubra. <laughs> 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 Inos calls uh, my boss, and then my boss says, no, you call Trevor, and I get called, and I, I run. That's it. That's it. Um, and, uh, you know, I went to school with the Mcheches, and, you know, Ben Mcheche, may he rest in peace, also just recently passed away. Um, and I grew up also in the homes of uh, Professor George Kahari, um, Mr. Mwahera. His sense. Oh, car is dress sense. You know, um, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this now. He's late, of he, course. He, he's late, of course, and I'm sure his children wouldn't mind. But he was a patient of mine. And he was the best dressed 91-year-old ever to show up in my office. Ever elegant, ever straight. And he actually had presence. He had real presence. Charisma. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Tell me, do our kids have that pool of pedigree to look up to? You know, it, it's hard for me to answer that question um, because I was gone for 30 years um, and only haven't been back for 10 years or so. It, it's, it's a hard question for me to answer. But having said that, um, there, 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 is a, there is a crop of, of visionaries that are in this country, that are raising children in this country, who are going to school with our children, who our children can look up to, um, and, and, and the one that, that uh, comes to mind is um, uh, who, I, who I actually saw two days ago, I hadn't seen him in a long time, um, is my good friend from Nyaradzo. Oh, okay. Philip yes. Mataranika. Philip. Oh, uh, what a man. An, an amazing human being, an amazing human being. And so, and I see him influencing, advising, mentoring. And, and I know there are many others, uh, my, my, my good friend, um, Komoongu, uh, um, Shingim Tasa, oh. another one, you know, uh, Mucham Kanganui. These are, these are people that are really, so, so I think we are surrounded by like type mentors, or at least our children are surrounded by like type mentors. And my goal, and my, my, both my wife and I, we try to expose our kids to as many of this as we, to as much of this as we can. I'm going to hold you there. I mean, you and I, I think, are going to be here for quite, for quite some time. <laughs> but um, please don't go away. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, um, Alan is going to share with us their amazing story of deciding to relocate from the U.S. and come back home. It's a painful story, but it's a story with a lot, lots of lessons. So don't go away. See you on the other side. You never, ever, you never ever felt like you belonged. You always felt like you were constantly having to prove yourself in order to fit in.
Welcome back to our conversation with uh, Dr. Chura, a consultant uh, urological surgeon. Urological surgeon. I told you I'm, I was going to stumble on that. Um, so you get inspiration from this guy as he walks out 4 p.m. Um, carrying his, uh, his books and you decided I'm going to study urology. Talk us through, take us through the journey. Where does it start? So <clears throat> at the time I was in Philadelphia at a school called the Medical College of Pennsylvania. Um, and <clears throat> an interesting thing happened um, at that juncture, which was that um, I, I, it hit me um, as I was about to apply to, for, the, for the urology positions that I'd never been in an educational institution where I was in the majority in my entire life. Wow. I had never been in an institution like that. Whether it was, you know, well, I should take that back, that I could recall. In primary school, let's say Michael's in Bari was probably the last time, but I had no recollection of it. Um, and so I decided sort of in my third or fourth year to do a, a rotation at Howard University Hospital, which is a predominantly black institution in Washington, D.C. Yeah. yeah. And so I went there for a month and it was an amazing experience because it was the first time in my life where an expert opinion was called upon and the person that came to deliver that expert opinion, whether it be cardiothoracic surgery, neurosurgery, ear, nose and throat, you name the specialty, it was a black person. And that was a mind altering experience for me and I decided that I In actually, what way, in what way? I felt so empowered. I really felt empowered. Um, you know, I think going through institution, and we talk about this on our old Georgian site, about the days that we went through St. George's as minorities, how much of an impact did that have on us compared to my children who were going through St. George's as, as, as majority? And there is a difference. Mm. What's, you know, what's the difference? The I'm difference sorry, is that they, it. Mm. in our day, they never made you feel like you belonged. Ah. You, never, you never ever felt like you belonged. You always felt like you were constantly having to prove yourself in order to fit in. And so for me, the way I did that was through sport. I played every sport there was known to mankind, which as a result of, I failed my O-levels dismally. I mean abysmal. Because I didn't pick up a single book just playing all these sports. But it was the best thing that Were ever happened Were you trying to, to fit? Oh, I was trying to fit. Well, it wasn't so much that I was trying to fit. I love sport. And... The more accolades you got, the more you were accepted. The more colors, right? Is that yeah, what they call them? Yeah? Exactly. They call them colors. And I think uh, to this day, I think I may still have one of the highest number of colors ever awarded. But that's not necessarily the thing I'm most proud of, mm. you know, because as a result of that, it led to some failures, but good failures. Because as a result of that failure, and I remember giving a talk at St. George's for their prize giving and telling the boys that, listen, just because you fail, Use that failure to pick you up and move forward. And that's what I Failure did. is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's it humbles actually, you. It, it, not only does it humble you, it drives you. Mm -hmm. It becomes a, a constant motivator. Mm -hmm. And that's what it did for me. It really did that for me. So you go to this DC yeah. University. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to, uh, to Howard University Hospital where I, I ended up doing my first... Actually, that's not true. I ended up... Because you have to do general surgery first... I had to do two years of general surgery in Philadelphia at a hospital called Pennsylvania Hospital, mm -hmm. which was the first hospital in the United States. And um, I did two years there. And then I went to Howard University to do urology. And halfway through my first year there, the program was put on probation 
by the authorities. And so I had to find another program. But again, just because I'd spent good quality time in Philadelphia, the people who I'd finished working for quickly said, listen, come back. Mm -hmm. We will find you a place. And they found me a place at Jefferson University Hospital, mm -hmm. which is a phenomenal institution uh, in Philadelphia. And that's where I ended up finishing my urology training. And then you, you specialize, where that's do you where specialize? I speci that's where I specialize. That was my specialty training in okay. urology mm. um, in Philadelphia. And then you get to work in Philadelphia. So I finished, I finished my training in 1998. Um, and at the time, I actually thought I wanted to be a pediatric urologist. So, um, but because I was a foreigner. And, and, sorry, yes, this time, Alan, yes. home is not come, saying come home. Well, you know, my father's an interesting man. He, he never, ever told you what to do. Never. He would not tell you what to do. He would talk to you around a conversation about what you maybe should do and ultimately allow you to make the decision. Fantastic. Yeah. And so um, I remember when I finished in 1998, um, I'd finished my medical training, I'd finished my specialty training, and I called him. I said, listen, I think I want to come home. I'm ready to come home. <clears throat> and he said, you know, um, I, I think it might be wise to just sort of get a little bit of experience before you come home. Just why don't, you, why don't you work a little bit and then maybe think about coming Are you home. grateful for that? Well, he knew what was, what was going on in 1998. He could see the, the lay of the land. Mm -hmm. And without telling me about the lay of the land, he was essentially saying, just wait a little bit. And uh, it was only in 2008 that we came home in December of 2008 that I remember my wife and I looking at each other and saying, I don't think we can ever bring our children back here because it was that bad. Um, you know, we, I just didn't think we could. Well, fast forward two years later, she says, no, let's go back. <laughs> Shall we go there? Yeah. Because that's, that's interesting. One moment you hear, she says, I don't think we'll come, ever come back here. But something no, happened. I'm the one that said you, that. You are the I'm one. I'm the one that said uh -huh. she, She's always said, we're coming back. But, that was me. But you, 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 you're home. Yeah. And something happens whilst you're in the States. Mm. And she loses it. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to us about that. Yeah. What made you finally... So, so, so we were living in, uh, in a small town in, in southern Oregon, up in the mountains. It's about 5,000 feet above sea level. And the snow starts somewhere in October. And there's snow on the ground typically until March, May, sometimes even June. And so there's one morning she's going outside to get ready for work. And she's going to start the car. She puts the, tries to put the key in the, in the ignition and the key will not go in. So she has to come back in, get some hot water to pour it on the, on the lock so she can defrost the lock, sits in the house for a little bit, then turns around and says, I will not be here for not a single year longer. I want to go home. Hmm. So whatever we've got to do, let's do whatever we've got to do because we're going home. And it just so happened that it coincided with our trip to, to come back home um, and to, to visit. And during that visit, we applied uh, to Bishop's Lee School for positions for our daughters. <clears throat> and I remember Rick Crook uh, writing. Lovely his, man. Lovely man. Lovely man. Rick. Uh, He's been on the show. Oh, yes? Yeah. Oh, what a lovely guy. Lovely guy. So um, we, we, uh, he sent us a, an email saying, look, um, this is now 2010 and uh, going into 2011. He says, look, I've got, I've got two spots. Uh, for your daughters to start in January. And if you don't take them, you know, you'll never get spots again. And this was now in October of 2011. 
So uh, we sort of looked at each other and said, this is it. And my wife had always been wanting to come home. I was the one that was a little more cautious about coming home. I wasn't Why? sure. Why? I, <clears throat> you know, when, you, when, you, when you've worked hard to reach the levels that we'd reached, we had reached a level of success in the United States. We were both now qualified specialists. We had the big house. We had the, the big cars. The kids were going to private schools. My wife was on the board of the local community. So it felt like we had achieved what it is that we wanted to achieve. And um, the more we talked about it, we kind of realized that there has to be more to it than this. What was Nozipo's uh, pain point? Apart from the car refusing to start. <laughs> <laughs> her, her pain point was really, uh, it was a mutual pain point. It was mm -hmm. like, you know, we, yes, we've reached, we've reached this level of, of success, but are we really significant? You know, are we really, really significant? And the answer is no. We leave those jobs tomorrow. You know, there'll be another urologist that will come in now. Truth known, neurosurgeons are harder to come by, so they're harder to replace. But as far as urologists, they could replace me. Um, and no, we could have a, is a neurosurgeon. 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 Yeah, or brain surgeon. I, I, I can't pronounce these yeah. this, this words. And she's the first female black surgeon in Zim, hey? In Zim, but she's all, she was also the first black female neurosurgeon on the African continent. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You're so blessed. Yeah. I am. I'm, what she's doing with me, I don't ask. So mm. just between you and I. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to let you go. Yeah. I really must embarrass you because you share something in common with me. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't finish your thesis. Yeah. I didn't finish my uh, yeah. MPhil thesis, uh, Alan, and I must tell you, uh, it's something that um, I'm still does, begging does, to does, recover Does it gnaw at you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Alan, I spent three, four years in the National Archives. Mm. Boxes and boxes of research. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, introductions done and that kind of stuff. And life happened. Yeah. I went to teach at the University of Zimbabwe. I kept on saying I'm going to do it. I moved houses. I don't even know where the boxes are now. Oh, but guess what? I want to go to the University of Zimbabwe and say, guys, I did some research. Mm -hmm. Can I have the degree? Talk to me about why you didn't finish your thesis. So, so mine was was a little different in that um, uh, mine was a was a uh, a one year bachelor, uh, or, or sorry, one year master's degree. Okay, um, in developmental biology, and I'd been doing the research actually from from the even before I started the the program with my mentor, uh, Dr. Barbara Clark, who unfortunately is late. And, um, and so she's the one who said to me, listen, you can do this as, a, as an MA without a thesis, or you can do it as an MS with a thesis. And of course, I said, no, I want to do with an MS with a thesis. So I started down this path. During that same year, I took the medical school entrance exams, and I applied to medical school. And then I got accepted to medical school, which was my ultimate goal <laughs> yeah. anyway. So I had achieved what I really wanted to achieve. So... I, I didn't really feel that the that the thesis, the thesis was, good, was, was, was that, that important anymore. I'd, I'd achieved what I really wanted to. But achieve. but can you ever forget about not? I don't forget. Done, I, yeah. I, I always it always lingers in the back of my mind. One of those things that and were never I, done. Completed. It was just it was never completed. Yeah. I actually I actually made an attempt to go back and do it. And and I failed again. <laughs> life got in the way. <laughs> so. Um, you then decide you and Nozipo and the kids. Now let's go home. 
how easy was it to come in and fit in? Talk to me about that. That was probably the most difficult year of my life. Yeah, I, I will honestly say it was, it was really hard. What year was this? So this is 2012. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what made it uh, difficult were a couple of things. First of all, I, I think there is a lingering um, suspicion of American degrees. Mm. In Even Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and rightfully so. And I don't, I don't begrudge them that because, um, especially medicine, uh, there was an anesthetist that had been here many, many years ago, and I think he came here and was experimenting on people, yeah. and he killed people, and and that's that's lingered over the years that you know these Americans you know you can't trust them, so we we had that to fight, even though we you know we were well trained, we'd been consultants by that point. By the time we came, we'd been consultants for thirteen years, but yet there was still this mistrust of our abilities, um, and so just getting through the processes of counsel and navigating you know, how these things work, it just took a long time for us to figure out that you don't just come here and start working. And when you're using your savings and you've got four children in private school, you blow through a fair amount of that savings. And so it ended up requiring my wife to actually go back. Actually, initially I started going back to, to work for a couple of weeks and then come back. And my wife did it for an entire year, just going back and forth to the United States just to allow us to finally settle. <clears throat> but it was so worthwhile. What what advice do you give mm. to, you know, people call me, reach out, Trevor, is, is, it, is it okay to come home? And I, I usually say it's a personal decision. It depends on your own personal circumstances. But where I am right now, Nyarad and I have been back now for, um, we came back in 2018. And we don't regret having made the decision, but it wasn't easy. I was sharing it with her this morning your story, and your story almost looked like, sounds like ours. What advice do you give to somebody right now, considering at the age of making a decision to, to come back home? What advice do you give? So, so um, we, we were in the, I think, unusual position of making that decision. I turned 50 the year after I arrived. And so <clears throat> for us to pack up at that age to start from scratch is, is not... That's brave. It, it, some people will call it dumb. Stupid. But, but you know what? It was brave and it's worked out very well for us. Um, so the, so, and we, got, we get these calls all the time, uh, nonstop, you know, what should we do? We're in this predicament. And, and, and we tell them the same thing. It is a very, very personal decision. Um, but at the end of the day... Um, you want to be sitting in your rocking chair and looking back on your life and feeling like you have made a significant contribution. If, and at least that's for me. That, that, that ability to make a contribution is really important. So when they want to say, I want to come home, is this the right time? I tell them there is no such thing as the mm. right time. I used to think there was a the right time. Thank God I married a very wise woman who said there is no, there's no right time. Let's go. Let's just the go. The car is not starting. Let's just go. And off we went. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I and like you, I any I have regrets? No regrets? Any regrets? I really don't. No, I really don't. And we go back to the U.S. probably once or twice a year, okay. and and as each of the years go past, I have fewer fewer really any desires to go back there and live. If you would ask me to move back now, I wouldn't go back. You've moved from success to significance. Mm -hmm. I love that. I've got a book upstairs uh, that talks about that, written by. 
um, whose name I can't remember now, you are now significant. And I want to talk us to, to go to Ecosurgical. Mm. Talk to us about you and Nozipo have built Ecosurgical. What were the bad pangs for this institution like and what it is that you're now doing? So um, Ecosurgical actually started in, in, in Oregon before we even packed up to move. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a vision that we had that we wanted to be in a position to be able to build a sort of uh, a medical facility that would allow us to do our surgeries. But that facility would be of a, of a grade that would allow our fellow diasporans to be able to come and consult, operate, and feel like there's really no difference between operating here and there. Why the hell am I over there when I could be here? That was first class. That was really what we wanted yeah. to create, and um, and and we and the reason for the echo bit was healthcare is one of the most polluting industries when it comes to the environment. I see. And so the echo bit was really to try and find ways to be, you know, environmentally sustainable. That was that was sort of our original vision. Now that's twelve years ago. And as you know, you never hold on to a vision. No. You have to, you have to move with it. It pivots. It pivots. And yeah. so our ecosurgical vision has pivoted. We now have uh, specialty I'm, rooms. I'm going to hold yeah. you. Go ahead. Let's, yeah. let's take a 20 minute a, a break rather than a 20 minute break. Let's take a break. When we Don't go away, please. Uh, we're going to deep dive into uh, ecosurgical and the myriad of things that uh, uh, Alan is doing. So see you on the other side. Every male or female for that matter above the age of 30, has to have a physical examination once a year. Enter the digital newspaper era, bringing the latest news and events to our fingertips in real time. Imagine getting instant unlimited access to the news deck, the standard, and the Zimbabwe independent, all on one unified platform. Introducing the Newsday e-reader, a quick and effortless means of keeping up with the rapidly evolving global affairs. We are excited to announce our latest offering, the Corporate Bundle for Group Access. The Corporate Bundle gives corporates unlimited localized access to all three publications at a discounted price. Connect your employees and guests accessing your corporate network to authentic news in real time. In comes the e-reader bundle for individuals. The Noonday e-reader individuals bundle unlocks a one-month free unlimited e-reader access to all three AMS publications. An affordable annual subscription thereafter will keep you connected. You can also subscribe to the AMH annual content bundle for as little as $19.99, unlocking unlimited access to scholarship updates, vacancies and notices, properties and mortgages, the Green Digest, tenders, both government and NGOs, and the Sunday Consolidated Bundle. To activate your e-reader subscription, Scan the QR code appearing on our website or any of the AMH publications. 
download the Newsday e-reader on the App Store or Google Play Store or register via the link digital.afomedia.co.zw. To access the AMH content bundle, scan the QR code appearing on our website or any of the AMH publications or say hi on WhatsApp number 0718-787-962 to start enjoying unlimited content. Famba netai. Hamba leskati. Famba netokwadi. Hamba etemiswemi. Famba ne news. Hamba ne news. For more information, contact Blessing on 0773-017-561 or Lauren on 0773-253-517. Welcome back to our conversation with uh, Dr. Alan Chura, a consultant urological surgeon. I got it right this time. <laughs> I got it right. So I, I love the concept of the eco-surgical um, practice. And I, I, want, I, want, I want us to drill down into what it offers. But as you answer that question, some people have said to me, Zimbabwe is ripe for medical tourism because we've got the right expertise. We've got some of the best medical brains there is. Uh, we've got the right uh, climate. Um, great place for um, oldies to come down here and, and settle down and, and, be, and be operated. But before we go there, let's drill down into what Ecosurgical offers mm -hmm. and, and the training that you're doing. Okay. So um, when we first came back home, both my wife and I were working at Pari, um, uh, myself in the urology department, my wife in the neurosurgery, in the neurosurgery department. We we're both involved in training um, um, future neurosurgeons and future urologists and as well as medical students. Um, my wife, um, being a pediatric neurosurgeon trained, uh, got really burnt out um, by the lack of theater time at Pari for the pediatric kids where kids were dying on her watch and she couldn't do anything about it. And so she got incredibly frustrated, felt like she couldn't have the impact that she really wanted and decided that she was going to focus on private practice and involve herself in some other activities that she's involved in. And so um, I've continued at Pari um, where I'm the head of the urology unit at Pari. Um, and so I'm involved in teaching medical students and uh, training urologists. Um, I'm happy to say we just finished two more. So slowly but surely, we are going to increase How the number of How many do we have in the country? So qualified specialists, I think we're now up to 13. Um, and uh, How does that compare to the rest of the world, oh, if not the region? No, we're, we're nowhere near okay. the rest of the world. Uh, even regionally, I mean, we, you know, Zambia is far ahead of us. Wow. South Africa is far ahead of us. And I even think Mozambique's ahead of us. So we are ramping up. We're trying to find ways to ramp up. Mm -hmm. um, I've recently been appointed as the, the president of the Urology Association of Zimbabwe. Congratulations. So things, thank you. <clears throat> one of the things that we're talking about is how we can ramp up our, our training so that we can get more and more urologists, so we can cover the entire country. Mm. What, what's, what's the... Uh, Blockage. What was was why are we not having more neuro, neuro, neurologists? Yeah. <clears throat> so I'd like to take a minute to pay tribute to somebody. Um, Mr. Mr. D. A. Dube um, is really the person that's responsible for starting urology training in Zimbabwe, 
and he did a phenomenal job of getting it started. But because it's a government institution, it is unfortunately affected by whatever the uh, economic, whatever the political... Budgetary uh, constraints. And budgetary constraints. All of those things play a role in the, the, the functionality of the, of, the, of the institution. And so when we've had strikes, when we've had, um, you know, just budgetary cuts that, you know, stop us from being able to buy disposables, equipment, medicines, etc., all that impacts training. And so um, it's, it's really led to a slow turnover of, 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 of urologists. Are you, are you positive? Are you optimistic, rather, I'm trying to say? Are you optimistic? I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, we, we went from a, and COVID really hit us hard again, uh, where we weren't doing any, any elective surgeries or non-urgent uh, emergency surgeries at Pali during that whole time. And so we've now been operating at Pali, despite it being sort of limited, but at least we're operating because the queues of people we see are immense. And the, the, the waiting list for people to have surgeries is immense. And so my hope is that slowly but surely we can start to regain that momentum that we had. When I first came home in 2012, when I was when I first arrived, Patty was really working. I mean, we had all the operating theaters were working. The um, we even did private patients at Patty. Said what's happening you know? in a very short space so, of time. Um, so, so let's let's talk now to what ailments are we seek, seeing. In the first instance. From, if I could just finish and tell sure, you that yeah, uh, yeah. Ecosurgery yeah. is literally right now, it's neurosurgery, urology. Uh, there are two urologists. I have a partner, Dr. Kudzama Cheka uh, is my young partner. And um, we also have a physical therapy unit called Citizen. Um, so that's really what we're doing right now. We've got a little facility that we're working on that hopefully will come to fruition here in the near future that'll allow us to maybe offer a little more. Um, one of my major fields of areas of interest is men's health. Um, I think it's an area that has been ignored for a very long time. And, um, and so I've been, in the last two or three years, I've been being invited to speak a lot more on the issues of men's health. Um, and, you know, some people ask me, well, why, 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 why are you wearing two watches? Yeah? <laughs> yeah, this one is to tell the time. This one is actually for my blood pressure. Mm -hmm. um, blood pressure is one of those things that, we, that is fully within our control. You know, if we go to the doctor, we're diagnosed with it, we're given medication for it, all we have to do then now is check it. And we can avoid all these strokes that are taking young people's young people, lives. Young people, 30s, yes, Absolutely. And this is preventable. This is absolutely How preventable. do we prevent it? So I think the main thing is, if I, if I could, if I could in a crystal ball, sure. be able to dictate that every male or female, for that matter, above the age of 30, has to have a physical examination once a year. Just a physical examination where they check your blood pressure, they check your heart rate. Then you get a series of blood tests, just a, just a screening set of blood tests, just to make sure we eliminate all these diseases that are now non-communicable diseases are really the burden. High blood pressure, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, obesity. You know, these are the things that are actually killing us now. Before it was the cancers, but now we're now starting to see there's going to be a change. And we are adopting this Western-style diet. Yes, mm. lifestyle and diet, diet that is honestly potentially going to kill us. So I tell people, if you could just get checked at least once a year, just go and get checked, get your bloods done, and, uh, for, for, and, and also just exercise. You know, 
40 minutes a day, four days a week. Just get your blood pressure to greater than 150% and you're good. Diet. There are many, many different types of diets, and I'm not going to get into them. No. But we know that a well-balanced diet that is on the low end of the sugar scale is good for you. On the low end of the fat scale is good for you. And if you can just do those things, you will certainly do a wonder for yourself. Should we all also all buy that? that no, no, do not. In fact, don't, don't. I'm not even going to tell you the brand. Don't buy it. <laughs> But but do we need to check our blood pressure every day? Yes, you should be checking. Okay. You should be checking your blood pressure if it's not every day, at least once a week. Just okay. check your blood pressure to see where it is. Okay. You know, especially if you're taking medication. If you're taking medication, please, please, please check your blood pressure. What other conditions are you seeing? I mean, uh, I, I want you to give us guidance around prostate cancer mm -hmm. um, and and then other issues that yeah. affect men's health. Can yeah. we go there? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So the number one biggest problem that we see in urology is what we call benign prostatic enlargement. Mm. So benign prostatic enlargement is a non-cancerous disorder. Um, it affects pretty much every male. If we live long enough, you're going to get it. And that's just an enlargement of the prostate over time. And by the prostate enlargement, and I, I like to use this analogy of an apple. If you look, if you could take an apple, mm -hmm. and you take the core of the apple, and you imagine ah. that the core of the apple is the urethra that we urinate through. Over time, the pulp of the apple squeezes the core, and that's what limits the flow. And by limiting the flow, it gives us all of these symptoms of frequency, urgency, dribbling. All of those things come from that compression of the urethra. But that is a benign condition. And that is typically treated with medicines initially, and then we can do surgical operations to, to deal with the, the ones that are refractory to medicine. Then on the, uh, on, the, on the flip end, we've got prostate cancer, which has no symptoms. People think that prostate cancer has symptoms. It has no symptoms. In its early stages, there are no symptoms. It's a small cancerous growth that grows steadily through the prostate, eventually going out of the capsule of the prostate, invading the... The, the what we call the seminal vesicles, and eventually going to some lymph nodes, and then eventually to the spine. So in my PIRI clinic, where we typically see maybe 30 patients every week, I would hedge to say maybe five patients will come in, and most of those patients are coming in with advanced disease. That's a very high number. It's a high number. And you you say you're being invited to, to give these talks, Alan. Um, are, are you getting through? Is there traction? Are we health conscious? Mm -hmm. I think it's getting traction. Um, I think people are starting to realize that they can have ownership and, and, and they feel empowered that they are the ones who are in control of their health. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real mind shift change. As opposed, to, as opposed to waiting for things to happen to you, that you actually can Pro proactively. proactively keep things away. Yeah. And I think that message is starting Diet to get Diet and exercise Diet and exercise. annual check. And the annual check and also just your mindset. Yeah. Just you know a positive mindset. And also, one, the other one that has been shown to be really, really beneficial is a sense of community. Mm. When you live with a sense of community, it actually improves your overall health. Let's go to that sense of community. Um, or oh, before we, we do we do that, the tourism issue, medical tourism. Did yeah. you answer that question? I didn't answer that yeah. question. And what are your views? What are your views? So, I think uh, in principle, before you yeah. start, let me let me tell you this. Just like you coming back from the diaspora, the sense was, oh, I would need to be traveling back to South Africa for my medical checkups and everything else. I was pleasantly surprised about the talent that we've got here. 
that we've got some of the best brains. Has that been your experience? Absolutely. Or am I exaggerating? No, not at all. 100%. Okay. You're 100% correct. The, if you ask patients that go outside of this country for care, just ask them. You say, are you going because of your doctor? 100% will say no. She says, if I could have my doctor do what I need to be done here, I would do it. It's not about the doctors. The, they, they, the level of, and, the, and the level of training of the doctors in this country is astronomically high. We've got phenomenal quality. So why are we going out? We've had difficulty with institutions. Our institutions have not been, when, you know, when you're sitting and you're comparing with some of the South African hospitals, uh, the medical care, say, and they say, you know, the, and the, and the post-op care, mm -hmm. the nursing care, we've lost, God knows, last year we lost a thousand nurses. So, uh -huh. you know, so the quality of nursing care becomes, becomes very difficult. And it's, it's those reasons that Post people- surgery Yes. It's those reasons that people give you for wanting to leave to get care. It's not because of the, the, the expertise of the doctors. The doctors here are really, really talented. And so when, you, when we start talking about medical tourism, I, I get a little unbalanced because on the one hand, yes, I agree, we have the expertise to do it. And if the facilities were to be built so we could offer this world-class care in this facility with these world-class experts working in this facility, do we have the nursing care and ancillary support to support all of that? Mm. And given our current crisis where we've got any talented nurse leaving, I think we'll have a hard time. A hard time. Are you at liberty to talk about your passion for a medical school, privately owned, privately run? Are you, are you at liberty to share as briefly as you may? So um, I believe that we have... I think we're now going on to our fourth medical school, I believe, um, with uh, Great Zimbabwe coming online. Um, and they are providing really good educational care. I mean, good, good, really good medical education. And, and I think, though, that one of the benefits of having a private institution, in the same way that Africa University is providing private education, um, it offers a different spin and a different way of looking at variety. things. Variety. Variety. So we don't all look at things through the same lens. And I think that's important. So I think a private medical school actually is something that would be beneficial to the country. Okay. Yeah. Are you making traction with that? Uh, I personally am not. I wouldn't say that I'm making traction, but I, we've, we've had conversations with, with institutions to see is this is something that could be done. I don't know that it can be done, but I think it's something that well, would be I wish, beneficial. Well, I wish you all the best. I yeah. think really we ought to have a menu through yeah. from which we choose. Yeah. Um, success to significance. Shall we go there? You, Some of the things that you get involved in are pretty uh, amazing. Culture Fund, mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to run through them, yeah. and I want you to talk to the, the, the tour so that you're passionate about. Um, President of the Alliance Francais mm -hmm. uh, board for some time. Culture Fund, uh, do you speak French? Un petit peu. How they made me president. Merci beaucoup. The Culture Fund, Sports and Recreation Co uh, Commission, um, GEMS Capnick uh, Trust. Um, do you want to touch on, on one of those? Why, why, why the Culture Fund? Why did you get involved in the Culture Fund? So I've always had a passion for just culture, arts. Um, that's just one of my, my side passions. And so um, when I was... Um, Asked by um, is that from um, 
Dr. Mr. Inosura. Yeah, yeah. Can, can we just because, give him a bum bum? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's certainly from my parents. My both of my parents were yeah. and my, my you know, I remember coming back home on holiday from college and my mom saying, Come, let's go, we're going to an auction. And I was like, What auction? It was, it was an art auction. And so I I I I got this from my parents. And then meeting my wife, who also is extremely passionate about the arts, um, the two of us have been collecting art for the better part of 20, 25 years. Mm. So it's been, a, it's been an integral part of, of our family. Mm. Um, so when I was invited to join the Culture Fund board, um, I, was, I was really excited. Um, at the time when I joined, uh, they were giving about 400 grants a year to various cultural institutions in the country. And they were so impactful, incredibly impactful. Mm. So that was, a, that was a really fun five years where I got to learn a lot more about Zimbabwe um, the various you know, little corners of the world where you know, arts festivals are going on, cultural festivals are going on, basket weaving. We're beautiful people. Oh, we are just a phenomenally beautiful people. And so that was a really fun five years. I really enjoyed that. Uh, the Kaepernick Trust has also mm. um, um, been a really sort of an interesting journey. They were mostly involved in pediatric, pediatric HIV work. Um, and they asked me to come on board and... Um, through that, and I think I've been there for seven years now, I think, and they um, are also involved in early childhood education. Uh, they help build schools in rural areas. And so they do an immense amount of work, an immense amount of work. The Kaepernick the, 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 uh, Trust takes me to a place that uh, you and I chatted about before we came here. Because James Kaepernick mm -hmm. made lots of money while still mm -hmm. alive. When he died, he decided to put this money into a trust mm -hmm. to do work in a place that he was passionate about. We don't see philanthropy within the black community at this scale. Am I wrong? Um, I, 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 I tip my hat to um, Strive Masiwa. I think Strive has done, um, in his own way, by starting up uh, his foundation. Yeah, Higher Life. Higher Life. I think Higher Life has really been uh, almost a, a Rockefeller-esque. For us. For us. Um, that That is... That is the philanthropy that we see on a global scale. But um, there is a philanthropy that takes place within our communities that I don't think gets as recognized. And, you know, and I think I just speak to my father. I, you know, I haven't, I, I've never counted them, but I know my father educated probably at least 20 to 25 of my relatives. That's oh, philanthropy. And, and so that is philanthropy. Um, my father probably had God knows how many people employed mm. at the time. That is philanthropy. philanthropy. So the way in which we look at philanthropy may be a little different. From the Western type. From the Western type of yeah. philanthropy. Okay. Um, and so it's not that we don't have it. We just have it in but a Should we way. not institutionalize it? I'm, I, don't, I don't know. We shouldn't copy what the West is doing, but you've already come up uh, with Strive's name. Mm -hmm. um, that For me, that ensures continuity, longevity. Mm -hmm. What was your pushback there? Um, I think remember we we are we are relatively new to this model of philanthropy, yeah? and I suspect that in time models like Strives will be copied by others um, because of the ability to pass on intergenerational wealth. Right, um, and also you got to remember that we don't have the tax frames that allow for in, for for philanthropy to really 
flourish mm. in the way that they do in the West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we need to do that. If we could, if of, we uh, could, if we could do that, then we would certainly be in a position to to have people more interested in doing it and excited about your museum. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why when we started, Lalena said, you've got such a rounded and beautiful uh, life. What's the inspiration behind the museum? One, two, where is it? What does it offer? So um, the Discoverium is what it's called. Um, and that name is taken. There's a, there's a famous museum, an interactive museum in San Francisco called the, Explor the Exploratorium. And... Um, the idea behind these museums is that you are doing experiential learning. Um, and, you know, interestingly, the kids that benefit the most from these types of museums are the kids that, if you remember how we used to stream everybody. Yeah. You know, the ABC stream, right? The C stream yeah. is always the dunces, supposedly. Mm, well, that's where I used to be. But <laughs> what interesting is that if you look at, uh, if you take a global perspective, a lot of the sort of the people who've gone on to be multimillionaires, billionaires, a lot of them came from that C stream. And so... Obviously, there's more to that sea stream than we than meets the eye, and that's also where a lot of the people that fall on the sort of the autism spectrum fall into that into that bucket. And these kids benefit from visual, auditory stimulation, um, and sensory. More than, yes, yeah. molds using their hands um, to to build things, and so. The, that was the, the idea behind these these experiential museums. And so when we came home and we raised our children on this concept, we should take them. So we would travel on the basis of two things. One, they had to be a Michelin star restaurant somewhere for mom and dad <laughs> so we could splurge. And then the second thing was they had to be a children's museum for the kids to go to. Yeah. And so we would pick our vacations on the basis of those two things. And so they really had wonderful experiences in these museums. And when we got home, we realized that there really isn't a lot to do. If you're not in a family that does hunting, fishing, yeah? yeah. Um, the schools keep you occupied fully. Yeah. So that even on Saturdays, you're, you're at school doing whatever sporting activities Sports, are at school. In there, which leaves really just a, one, just a Sunday. Mm. And so we thought that it would, it would be good to have a, an option to have something else to do that was fun, but yet you're learning at the same time. What is it? So... When we first came home, we opened it in Masasa, mm -hmm. um, and we we rented a big old warehouse and we built exhibits. We actually spent a lot of time building. Exhibits. We had a, we had a six meter dinosaur that we built with. Uh, this is beautiful. With metal, we had an Egyptian portion. We had a planes, trains, and automobile section, so we could treat, teach physics, and and it was an amazing, amazing place. And the kids would come in there, so there were busloads of kids that would come in, mm -hmm. and they would spend two, three hours there, and they wouldn't want to leave. Sadly, it was around the time of the police roadblocks, if you remember that yeah. time. So a family coming from Bardell to Masasa would be stopped four or five times, and, and slowly but surely our traffic dwindled. And so we ended up having to shut it down. So we haven't given up on it. Okay. We, we've, we've sort of housed it now and is doing sort of pop-up events here and there with the hope that we are actually going to hopefully open it up um, in a venture that my wife is currently working on, uh, it's called the Zika Festival. Mm -hmm. uh, Zika happened last year in December, and it was a cultural arts culinary festival that happened for two weeks last year. And so they're going to have another one this year, and we're going to have the museum as a permanent structure mm -hmm. in there for a while. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're working on. Alan, such a pleasure talking to you. What's been the most beautiful thing about coming back home? For me, the most beautiful thing about coming home was watching my children 
really get to know their grandparents and developing a really strong rapport with their uncles, aunts, cousins. It's priceless. When you're on the diaspora, you don't really think about how alone you are. And, and for those that are in the diaspora, I can only encourage you, please bring your kids home, even if it's for a week or two weeks, just bring them home. Let them immerse with their people. They, they leave with a real sense of belonging. This from a man who spent 30 years in the diaspora. Yes. This must mean a lot, isn't it? Yeah. You and I have been very serious. Um, I, I want to, to have fun with you. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. So um, what's been the most daring thing you've ever done? <laughs> bungee daring? jumping? I have. That oh. was probably the most daring <laughs> thing. I bungee jumped with my brother. <laughs> there was a trip we took to Big Falls. Uh, we bungee jumped together. And then we went whitewater rafting together. Um, he hated the bungee jumping. I actually liked it. But that was that is not the most daring. I mean, I, <laughs> that is honestly the most daring. Really? Thing. No, because how did I know? You're, throw, you're throwing your life into. Why into do a you river. do it? It's for the thrill and the excitement of it. Wow! Yeah, the adrenaline rush. Do you have a phobia? Yes. What is it? Snakes. Hmm. Who is your role model apart from your dad? Uh, <laughs> you're not going. You there. took him away. <laughs> You took him away. Well, dead. Let's talk about dead. I mean, you've already uh, talked he, about he, him. Yeah. Yeah. He just and, and by the way, we're really yeah. honoring him here. Yeah, yeah. Amazing man. We should celebrate each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, um, I'm on a bit of a mission. I would like to have an award in his honor, actually. Fantastic. So it's something that's in the works, and uh, hopefully it'll come to fruition. Let's honor him. I, I pray because that as a, just from a leadership camp, yeah. you know, he just was an amazing leader. Yeah. And uh, he was a patient leader, as you said. Um, and a real visionary, he, 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 he could, it's almost like he had a crystal ball. Yeah. He really did. He could sort of just look at things. You and, know, what? one yeah. thing I haven't said is he said to me, uh, have you thought about doing an MBA? So I said, um, I, I, I don't know. There was a psychologist at Delta. Um, yes, who, Clive Pilsen. Yes. Another, so he, another he, great role he, model. He arranged a meeting yeah. for me, um, for Clive to do a psychoanalysis of me, which he did. And the conclusion you'd be disappointed to know was that I'm not MBA type. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, as a result, we're here. Thank goodness. So that's your father. Yeah. That's what your father yeah. did with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your favorite uh, um, uh, holiday destination place with a Michelin star hotel? Um, Rome. Rome. Mm. Why Rome? Rome is just, you know, uh, when you walk down the streets of Rome, um, it's like every Cobble building is like, a, is like a museum. Every single building is museum, is like a museum. It's, it's got a story. It's old, ancient. Um, so I love Rome. And I love the people. The people are very warm compared to further up north. If you came back to life and medicine was not an option, what would you do? I'd own a jazz bar. <laughs> yeah. Really? I'd own a jazz bar. Can I, I come? Love, can I come into partnership with you? Absolutely, absolutely. I'd love a jazz bar uh, with good food, um, good company. Um, yeah, that would be really nice. You know, my good friend Gosana Moyo um, says we we need a place where, and I know you're big on thought leadership, mm -hmm. where we get people 
you know, to discuss ideas, mm. to discuss issues, cup of coffee, jazz and stuff. Mm. Maybe you and I and Gosana should get together and do that. I'll be the very, very interesting man. I'm not going to let you go before we talk books. Um, so we're, we're going to discuss books now. When you look at me right now, you reminded me of your father. Don't do this to me. I know. I, I look like him. I can't help it. Wow. Anywhere I go. <laughs> Share with us three books that you've read that you'd want to uh, recommend to our reading uh, audience. The love books. Book section is one of the... Yeah. So, um, gosh, that's, that's a... I, I, I love this particular author named um, Isabella Lande. Mm -hmm. And I, I've, in fact, I was talking to my daughter. My daughter is a voracious reader. And I was telling her, I think I finally realized what genre of books I like. Mm -hmm. And um, At 60. At 60, I finally realized what genre of books I like. And, and you know, and it's historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And I was telling Nozipo, I said, you know, Nozipo's a writer, you know, so she's written... A New York, New York Times bestseller before, and so as a writer, I said to her, you know, maybe it's because they have a, a longer post-independence history, but this, the Latin American countries, their authors are writing these um, amazing stories that 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 sort of tell you about their culture, their history, and they bring it all the way into modern day. And I've read a number of uh, Isabel Allende's books that are that way. Um, the other writer, uh, her name is uh, Shifak Efik, Efik, I think is her last name. She is from Turkey. And similarly, um, there's a book I'm reading now called Where Have All the Trees Gone? And it's a beautiful book. Have you ever read a book where a tree is a character? No. Where a tree, because science is coming out now and talking about how trees are not inanimate. Mm. The trees actually have feelings. Mm. Trees communicate. They use hormones to communicate from one tree to another. And so in this book, a tree is a character. And they talk about us humans and how stupid we are. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, a, second that's one? a second one. And then, um, just the, then I, I, I guess I'd have to say Shantaram. Mm -hmm. Shantaram was a, an amazing story. Um, uh, and it, it's supposedly true. Um, again, I learned all about India. In, in ways I had never known. Mm. So I think what it boils down to, I love books that teach me or take me into another place that is unfamiliar. Without saying history. Without, yeah, without saying history. They take me to another mm. place where I learn something and I can experience a life mm. of someone in a, in a totally uh, different place from where mm. I am. I have to ask you this. Where do you go to during your tough moments, during your painful moments, um, so I, um, I have a morning ritual. Um, I'm generally up around five. And um, I have a place where I go and I sit and I meditate. Um, I have readings that I do every morning. Um, and I share, there's uh, two things I share with my family on our group. Um, and I'll tell you guys about it. One is, it's called the Daily Stoic. Um, 
And it's just a short little passage that really inspires everybody. And the second one is, uh, it's called Word of the Day. And um, so we all learn a new word every day. And I share that with the family. Um, and you do this every day? And I do this, I do this every day. And so I, um, that is my place where I go when, I, when, I'm, when I'm having a hard time. Um, and you know, one of the things about medicine is that, especially surgery, and I'll say that for medicine as a whole, is that patients don't understand that we take everything with us. We have a consultation, we do a surgery, it doesn't end there. I'm constantly thinking about that patient, that surgery, that, you know, maybe I could have done this, maybe I could have done that, maybe those things stay with us as doctors. They don't just end there. And so um, we, we need places to go to where we can just try and clear our minds. That daily ritual for you helps. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. In honoring you, I'm honoring your dad. Thank you. An amazing man. Yeah. And uh, thank, thank you for what you're doing for Zim. Thank you for coming back home. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you for so, the time. This was really a lot of fun. Thank you very much. I enjoyed yeah. it. Please remain sitting there. And allow me to tend to our viewers who are all over the world. We absolutely love uh, your support. Remember, we are a weekly show. We are out on YouTube, 7 a.m. Central African time. To ensure that you don't miss out on any of this college conversation, I invite you, please, to subscribe. Click here, subscribe, like, and share. When you subscribe, you will receive a notification every time we have one of these college conversations, like the one I've had with my brother here. Um, and so you're not going to miss out on that. We've gone a step further. We've built a website where all our content sits. Uh, we've had, I think, right up to now, it's about um, over 150 uh, guests that we've had here. We're sitting on 6.1 million views on uh, YouTube alone. We, we, we can't keep track with uh, all the other platforms. We thank you for your support. We see your comments uh, below the videos. We see the suggestions that you, you make. We love the criticism. It makes, it makes us grow. Until next time, cheers to you all.